Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. For a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Alex Fernani. Alex is a PhD student in management and organisation at NUS Business School in Singapore. He is an associate editor with World Futures Review. He's an honorary research fellow at Strathclyde Business School and Futures and Foresight Consultant with Shaping Tomorrow and Forward 2. Alex conducts research on corporate foresight and futures and foresight theories and methods. His research has been widely published in a range of journals, including the Harvard Business Review, Futures, Foresight, and World Futures Review. He has also joined the quickly becoming crowded field of futures and foresight podcasters with his series called Foresight Chats. Welcome to FuturePod, Alex. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. Yeah, it's great, Alex. It's good to talk to a fellow podcaster. Indeed. Question one, Alex. The the story question. What is the Alex Fernani story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Uh, thanks for that question, Peter. Well, first of all, I also want to thank you for this great opportunity. I've been a stalwart listener of the, the Future Pod. I have to say I'm really honored to be here, especially looking at the list of outstanding scholars and practitioners you had before me. So I'm really honored. I have to say that FuturePod contributed to my thinking, and I guess that is what it's supposed to do, because no matter whether I agree or disagree with the guests, I always find a way to, to use FuturePods to enhance my thinking about the field. So I, it has been great to, to listen to your work. So I commend you for that. And I'm, I also commend you for the variety of perspectives that you're bringing to the table, which I, I guess is really critical, which is also reflected by your use of futures and foresight as a word to define the field, which I love because I think it's a good way to somehow, you know, include the more academic side of it, which is future studies, and the more practical side of it, which is foresight, in, in a rather respectful manner, insofar as futures in futures and foresight stands for future studies. We don't, don't want to exclude the studies out, but I think uh, you are one of the many who are increasingly using this term, which I also use, so I commend you for that too. Thanks. That's great that FuturePod has has helped in some ways uh, you become established in the field. Well, uh, yeah, that's right. FuturePod has helped me to hone my skills, into thinking skills on this, so thanks for that. Good. Let me answer that question more directly. What is my story? I think there are two ways to answer that because one could think of the more profound reasons why to approach and study and investigate and work with the future. And there is also a more superficial chain of events that leads to, to studying and investigating the futures. Mm. In my case, the more profound reason is that I've always been so fascinated with the unknown that is before us in the future. Mm. It's just so amazing. I, I mean, think about that. Just think for a second, 10 years ago, I didn't know about future studies. I didn't know future pod. I didn't know what all of this was, right? And thanks to the future, now I do. And I'm here talking to such an interesting person who has done so much in the field. And so that corroborates the idea that we can shape it. So that's so fascinating, right? True. That's the more profound reasons, I would say. Then, of course, there is the chain of events that led me to be in this field, which is Originally, I was actually a student of Asian languages and cultures. So I originally studied Chinese studies and economics. It was a multidisciplinary degree at the University of Bologna back in Italy. And that led me to eventually go to China and work in China. That was the supposed outcome of that bachelor degree. And in China, I did a lot of different jobs, but eventually I ended up working as a consultant. And in my nine to five consultant job, my task was majorly was to advise Western investors Mm. on how to invest in shopping malls in China. I was working for a shopping mall real estate development agency in China, 
And the sole task of that agency was to find investors in order to invest in those shopping malls, to build those shopping malls, uh, primarily in second and third tier cities in China, so that they could show the regional government that they had increased their GDP. And in that way, the regional government could show the central government that they were doing their good share of work to enhance China's GDP, which is one of the major objectives of the Chinese government, as you know. Mm -hmm. So everything kept going, right? But I realized after a few years in that job, I realized it was such a silly and and somehow insane machine because just to give you some fun examples, a lot of those shopping malls were not actually built at the end of the day. They were just either project or they were built and then they were not filled up. So they were ghost shopping malls and it was quite scary to visit them. You know, So the whole idea was to create this ghost project that would eventually not end up being real shopping malls just to inflate the GDP of the regional government. So in order to inflate the GDP of the central government so that China could cook its books, so to speak. Mm. So that led me to think, oh, wow, this is interesting. We have some systematic problems here. This capitalistic system, at least in the way it is interpreted on Chinese soil, it's a bit weird, right? So I thought maybe there are ways to improve the system we're working with. And uh, plus, to be honest, I was starting to get bored of that job. So I thought mm, maybe I can join a master's degree, right? And I started looking for intriguing and interesting and challenging master's degree. And I almost by chance came across this master's degree in Taiwan uh, that sounded intriguing. I think that's the way many of us actually stumble upon the field, right? It sounded intriguing, yep. right? Yep. What is it, right? And and then I realized, oh my God, there's such a, an array of amazing classes, right? From global development, the future of careers, uh, change and complexity, all the classes sounded so amazing. So I thought, all right, I'm going to apply. And I was lucky enough to be applied with a scholarship. And I thought that was a good opportunity because, you know, it was in Taiwan, so it was still in Asia, which is an environment I was very used to. Mm. And I had the chance to improve my Chinese as well, along my English, because the program is delivered in Chinese and English. Is this the Tan Kang program? That's right. That's the Tan Kang program. Yes. Uh, and I went to Taiwan. I moved to Taiwan. I stayed in Taiwan for about two years to pursue my master's degree there in future studies. And uh, along the way, of course, uh, my thinking about capitalism evolved. So it was not that simplistic. Yeah. I ended up doing a thesis on the futures of capitalism. So as you might imagine, I looked a bit deeper into that. And at the end of the day, I realized it's not just a systematic problem. There are many profound reasons, including human nature, of course, why we end up doing such a silly thing like creating ghost shopping malls. But yeah, at the end of the day, I, I, I found that no matter whether my thinking got more sophisticated, the idea of studying the futures was so fascinating. So I kept doing that. And I thought, actually, I'm enjoying doing this, right? So I, I might as well just keep doing it and go on and hone my thinking even further and go into a, P a PhD program. Mm -hmm. And since I was in Asia, and I guess... If you want to do a PhD in Asia, Singapore is a is a great choice as as great resources and infrastructures. I eventually ended up doing a PhD in Singapore about this, so that's where I'm now. So, what is your research question in Singapore? That's a great question. Uh, that's actually the question that every researcher wants to be asked, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, in my case, it's different because I'm approaching the PhD as a multi-project endeavor. So instead of doing like a big chunk, like a big thesis, I am working on a number of things. And I guess that's good for me. It works for me because I tend to lose my interest quite quickly. I just think simply cannot, I don't think I can spend like five years on the same topic. It's just too much. So I'm, I'm doing a number of things. I am working on methods on one hand. I am working about on, on a project on the futures of organizations. That is about how organizations are portrayed in the collective unconscious, in the imaginary about the futures. And I'm working on the epistemology of the field. And I'm working at the intersection between 
business schools and management in particular and futures and foresight, looking at why futures and foresight is not establishing in business schools, mm. although it is very relevant for management and organization studies. So I'm working on a number of things. My thesis is about the different impact of different kinds of images of the future on cognition. But that is just one of the many projects. So I tend to see the PhD as, you know, a collection of projects. And I guess, I mean, maybe many, dif- many different people would have different views on this. But I guess that is extremely rewarding because you tend to be interested in more than one thing when you study stuff in a PhD, right? That's great if you have a school that support what to me sounds like you are curating a PhD portfolio. True. The school support is key. And I have to say that if you don't have that, unfortunately, you're not able to do it. So that's why I'm extremely grateful. And I just want to say that that one more time. And I'm extremely grateful to my advisor because at the end of the day, it's just about meeting an advisor that is giving you the autonomy to explore, you know, whatever you want. So that's for sure. Fantastic. Thanks, Alex. Second question. The uh, I'm looking forward to a, a meta-disciplinary futures PhD student as to what you want to talk to the listeners about in question two, which we talk about a framework or a concept or a philosophy or a method that is core to how you both think about the future and also do your futures work. So what do you want to talk about? Yeah, I know you are pumped up about this question, Pierre, because we <laughs> we share an interest in this. I know that you know that I know that, that I am very I'm very interested in uh, in this area on methodology. So my take on what methods or what part of futures and foresight we should be concerned about is rather scientific, I would say. Many times you have asked this question to previous guests. They have some of them have talked about a specific method or a specific conceptual framework or approach. But in my opinion, the fact that we are a diverse community, which is a good thing, there, there's also a silver lining there because we oftentimes work on different methods and we find it very difficult to arrive at a generalized knowledge about what methods works for what. Yep for what outcome, for what purpose, right? So my take on methods and methodology in the field is more about, I believe it's very important to use science to find empirically what methods are good for what outcomes. We, we simply cannot, I believe we simply cannot say this matter, this method is better than that method because each method has very likely an alignment with a certain outcome or a series of outcomes in a community, an institution, organization. So I believe that we ought to find that out. And unfortunately, we have not found that yet. So allow me to qualify that statement. Many practitioners believe that the methods they they use are good for certain outcomes. You might have heard of people who use scenario planning to enhance competitive advantage or, I don't know, people who use CLA to change the mental models of practitioners or planners. But that is a very ad hoc experience, so to speak. It's a very specific experience. We have not yet generalized that knowledge across practitioners, across contexts. There are many reasons for that, of course, but that is because future studies as an academic field, so if we focus on future studies, not on foresight, but more on the academic side of it, future studies as an academic field has an epistemological foundation that is not so much keen to look at things empirically. We want to change the world, right? We want to improve the world. We want to do it in a practical manner. It's a very practitioner-driven Field. So even the academic side of it has been focused on how stuff work in a specific context, but very seldom have we tried to create some scientific theories on 
what specific methods can be used in specific contexts, why do we use foreset other than other methods, and so on. And that requires some empirical research done with some scientific methods that could be qualitative or quantitative, inductive or deductive, depending on the specific research question. But that that is not being done so much. And I guess that resistance is because the epistemology of the field is a bit against empirical research. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. If, if I use a kind of metaphor to explain it, then this is this, yeah, because I watched your fascinating conversation on the listserv around this uh, earlier this year. For me, if I was to break it down to a metaphor, it's as if we have a population of people who want to run experiments. <laughs> we don't have a depth of people who want to do the theoretical. So it's kind of like as Einstein was a theoretical physicist and theorized the theories of how the universe operated, he never ran the experiments. People today are running experiments to prove things that he thought might have been the case 100 years ago. I think I totally understand what you're saying. What you're saying is that we have a lot of theory builders, so to speak. A lot of people who like to speculate is perhaps not the right word, but at least talk about, conceptualize, right? Argue and maintain and, and create theoretical positions and conceptual arguments about how the field works. But much less people keen at doing testing of those speculations, arguments, opinions. If I just take physics as a discipline, you could try to discover the rules of the universe by running experiments, but it'd be very, very hard. A lot of natural scientists devised philosophical theories of the world through observation and experiment. It gets you so far with scientific inquiry. But what you're saying, and I don't disagree with you, is that if we actually had theory-driven futures work, you could run experiments to try and prove or falsify the theories of things. Because currently, foresight, I would argue foresight is the experimental side of future studies. True. And the two don't join up. Foresight people don't test the theories expounded by academia nor does academia seek partners in the practical side to go out and test their theories. We don't appear to join the two things up. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there, ha there has been an article, I think it was written by Spaniel and Roland on Futures and Foresight Science, and they argued for uh, a mixed inquiry mode. That's what they call it, a mixed inquiry mode. And what they say is just in order to fix the problem that you just mentioned. They say we should have someone who does foresight and someone else who observes foresight and possibly collects data, you know, and sort of tries to see whether that is aligned to the theories we have in the academic side of it. Now, of course, there are a lot of arguments uh, for and against that position because I might totally think along the lines of Thomas Chermak and say, actually, the person who runs the workshop has to be able to do the experiments as well, maybe delivering some, some surveys to the participants before and after the foresight workshop, for example, because that person is the real knowledge carrier of what the workshop is supposed to do, right? So that is the person who is supposed to do the thing, not like a separate practitioner, observer kind of mode. But I personally approach this in a very liberal fashion. I, I think whatever takes you to, to the objective, you know, and there are a number of ways to do it. And there are, and there are a number of interests. And I guess the problem that you bring the problem that you mentioned is also because we have different sets of interests. Like those who are in academia, they are less likely to get in, in touch with practice and, and the other way around, right? Yep. So perhaps people want to do different things and you don't want to force them to do experiments if they don't want. That's against the right of study whatever you want to do, which is supposed to be key in academia, right? So whatever takes you to finding out whether what you do is good or not, it's okay. The mode is fine. But the bottom line is 
I believe it's central, it's crucial to find out whether all the speculations and practitioner-driven advice and guidelines that have been provided over the years, we have like five or six decades of amazing practitioners' opinion, right? Those have not been tested, right? So I think we have to test some of those to know whether what we claim is correct, right? I'm just giving a quick example. If we say that scenario planning is increasing the creativity of individuals who are doing it, which is a claim that I often hear about, Hmm. well, that is very likely the case. We both know it's very likely the case because scenario planning is a very intuitive activity. There is a bit of a rigor there. For sure, there are steps, but there is a strong component of intuition. So it's arguable that you can hypothesize that it leads to a high creativity in individuals. But it's not enough to say it. It's not enough to run a workshop and say, oh, my my participants seem to be a bit more creative, right? Because that opinion you have might be colored by a number of biases, including the biases of your own capacity to bring out that creativity. So we need to test that in a more objective manner. That's what I believe we should do. And I don't think this is against the idea of doing foresight. Many times this is considered to be against the idea of creating foresight uh, and bringing up foresight outcomes in communities and organizations because when foresight practitioners hear the word science and scientific, unfortunately, oftentimes they, they, they are scared because future studies is not supposed to be a scientific field, which I agree, future studies is not supposed to be scientific. In fact, I just mentioned that it is made of art as much as of science. But what we're looking at here is not making future studies more scientific. It's making the theory about future studies and foresight more scientific, which is two different levels of analysis. So I think that distinction is crucial. And once once we get to that distinction, then it seems easier to be able to do that kind of theory, which is in, in any way not against the practice of foresight. Okay. I'm going to push you to, let's imagine Alex is in a remarkable situation where you get the ear of Eric Overland at the Federation and you get the ear of Sherman Cruz at the APF. Mm -hmm. What would you advise each of them to do? Well, they are doing something already, at least as far as I know, the Association of Professional Futurists has established a task force to look at the outcomes of foresight practices and they are focused on evaluating those outcomes based on an evaluation and assessment perspective as far as I know and in fact I am a tangential member of that task force I'm not a primary member due to time zone problems unfortunately (laughs) but I am looking at it with much interest but what I would advise even beyond that is one thing is evaluating futures and foresight capabilities, interventions, and methods in terms of the objectives of an organization, which is a good thing. And I guess the task force is probably going to do that, and it should continue to do that. But another thing is to evaluate futures and foresight capabilities, interventions, and methods in terms of outcomes in general. So not just say, the effectiveness of certain methods for specific foresight projects in order to achieve achieve the objective of an organization or a community. But in general, what are the outcomes that we're really interested in? We talk about hope a lot, right? We talk so much about the importance of foresight to enhance the hope and optimism about the future of individual. But I have done a lot of digging in the literature, in the psychology literature, and I have I found no evidence whatsoever that looking at positive images of the future can enhance hope. There is no empirical evidence. In fact, there is a bit of empirical evidence showing that looking at, at negative images of the future yep. can increase hope because we are we want to prevent them so we work more and right so there is a, a bit of a conundrum there we need to develop some theories in order to understand whether the basic foundational claims, I'm not saying very sophisticated 
theoretical models. I'm just talking about the very foundational claims, right? For example, if we look at different futures or positive images of the future, that enhances hope for the future individual, right? Or, for example, some certain futures enforced workshop uh, or, or projects can enhance the competitive advantage of organization. Well, there is a bit of evidence about that. Rohrbeck and Kuhn did a great study in 2018 about that, but we need more evidence, right? So I would advise the World Future Studies Federation and the Association of Professional Futures, bottom line, to get in touch with some scientists who are interested in doing research on stuff that is relevant with futures and foresight. And those could be sociologists, psychologists, organizational scholars, uh, you name it. There are a lot of different fields that could benefit the, the field of futures and foresight. So engage those a bit more objective players in academia to collaborate with us you know, and create theories, empirically tested theories, robustly argued with a robust rationale. And that eventually will not just help us to understand what we're doing a bit better, but will also help us to legitimize our field in the face of other disciplines. Because a lot of disciplines, and I'm not saying all of them, just to be clear, I'm not saying all of the disciplines in academia are using an objective mode of inquiry, but a lot of them, including economists and public policy specialists, organizational scientists, management organization scholars, strategy scholars, psychologists, etc., behavioral scientists, they all think of the word in terms of objective theories, right, to be tested. So I guess, you know, oftentimes we, we might benefit from that kind of theory, especially if we want to establish our field in the public domain to be influential in the public discourse. Yep. Good. Thanks, Alex. Third question, the one where I get to talk to Alex, citizen of the world, citizen of Singapore. How are you making sense of the emerging futures around you? And what are you paying attention to? What are the emerging areas that get you excited? And possibly what are the emerging areas that that possibly cause you to be concerned? This question, Peter, for me is still an unknown. So I want to be clear from the beginning that I am not as prepared to this question as I was to the question before. (laughs) And that's okay, because I guess each of us has their own interests and stuff. So on one hand, I think that there is the rational part of me who wants to answer that question in a very neutral manner. So I'm Switzerland, so to speak, right? And that part of me just says, you know, all images of the future are equal. We should look at them in the same manner. We should give equal weight to all of them. And that is perhaps the part of me who is connected with a more scientific approach, right? As we were discussing before. And that also comes because when we advise and we focus too much on a specific image of the future, thinking that that is very beneficial to people or perhaps not beneficial, so we need to worry about it. Well, it doesn't take long to understand that those are relative attributes, right? Whenever we think that a certain image of the future is good for someone, it could be bad for someone else and the other way around. Yep. I remember, I think it was Thomas Sowell, the American economist, who, who said there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. So Thomas Sowell, whenever he heard about sweeping policy recommendation, you know, all those recommendations coming from other members of uh, the political arena saying, we need to do this policy in order to fix that and that. In that case, he always said, well, no, because a policy is always a trade-off. There are some people who lose and so some people who win, right? And I think that is the same for images of the future. So that is the rational part of me answering to that question. Now, that being said, of course, as you said, I am also a person with opinions and interests and fears and worries. So recently, I have been very interested in what is happening in North America in terms of the set of moral attitudes 
to ideological conformity in American universities that is slowly bringing a cancel culture and a lot of censorship. Mm. So that to me is as a student of Futures and Foresight, right? And as a reader of Futures and Foresight work and as a reader of science fiction, that to me is the initial flavor of dystopia, right? A society that creates a leadership based on who screams louder, right? Who is more emotional rather than who is more capable. And a society that calls everything discriminatory, even when it's not, and other outcomes. And I am a bit scared about that. So recently I've been looking into that space because I think that unfortunately is not only occurring in academia, but is a bit trickling down to the corporate world at large. But I have to say, quite honestly, I have not a clear opinion on this yet because this is such a sensitive topic and it is such a complex topic with with many different opinions. So I have not fully formed an opinion and I'm very actually open to, to have one in the future to change it along the way. Again, I'm like you. It's a fascinating development there's a number of lenses that you can look at it through. I mean, one of the lenses I look at it through is uh, Martin Gurry, uh, who's an American ex-CIA analyst, wrote a wonderful book, uh, which is hard to get your hands on. But he talks about it really purely as the elites that are no longer respected mm. oh, yeah. are, fighting, are fighting back. And one of the currencies of the elites getting there, if you like, getting listened to again, is to basically create this this culture, this this kind of cancel culture, woke culture, whatever you want to call it. And again, I think it's so complex that every form of analysis of it comes from a particular philosophical frame. That's right. And it's very, very hard to settle on, well, I don't think there is a frame that answers what it's caused. And therefore, what I think is a useful frame, and I think you're suggesting it, let's use the future (laughs) as the frame, not to understand what's happening, but at least understand it as to what's a better future for the generation coming after us with this happening here right now. Oh, for sure. For sure, the future is a good frame, but I wouldn't discard what's happening completely. So... I agree with you that the elite going down, the the regression of elites is definitely a big chunk of the whole story. And that might be due to uh, a number of different factors, including a, the polarization of, of politics in North America in, in, the, in the past few years. But I, I also think that discarding the present is not advisable. I mean, I mean the, the issue is we have certainly different opinions and different point of views on what's happening. If, if you just consider the discussion on inequality and how to fix inequality, not that not much what inequality is, but how to fix it, there is like a huge, a huge disagreement between hmm. those who think that we should fix inequality by assigning outcomes, by assigning quotas, right? So that means, all right, uh, that you're, you're going to basically create universal basic income uh, policies and uh, quotas in gender representations, and you you assign the outcome, so to speak, right? And there is another argument there that goes along the lines of no, the outcomes the outcomes are silly and oddly applied when they are. So we need to look at opportunities. We need to change the inequality of opportunities. And to be honest, when I look into both arguments, I have looked into this quite deeply. I cannot find my position. It's just so difficult because it really depends on the case, right? Certainly, some problems are problems of inequality of opportunity. If you cannot educate people well from the beginning, it's pointless that you assign them to the best job because they're not educated, right? That is the problem of inequality of opportunity. And yet, it seems that in certain situations, inequality of outcomes are desirable because for example, more diverse boards seem to be more uh, effective than less diverse boards. So it's really difficult to find the generalized positions on these issues. 
And I guess it depends on a specific policy we're looking at. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, as the the saying goes, the devil is in the detail, right? We need to look at specific mm. policy. But what what the only thing that worry, worries me about all of this is that oftentimes because of this new wave of political correctness, there is only one point of view, right? If you try to look deep into these issues, like the one I just mentioned about inequalities and the, how to fix them, you can see only one point of view, which is most often the case of inequality as to be fixed with assigning outcomes. That is one point of view, right? And you cannot see the other. And that is because there is a cancel, cancel culture that is emerging. And that worries me. Mm. And I don't think that looking only at what's best for the future would help fix this issue because that is also based on the present. That is also based on what kind of views on reality people hold about the present. But it seems to me that the fact that we cannot say things, well, that is something I have seen in dystopian science fiction movies a lot. You know, yep, so that yep, worries me yep. on one hand. Yeah. So again, there are two two camps there. One is freedom of speech. You should be able to say anything. And the other is, you no, know, because you don't want to offend people. So you shouldn't be able to say anything. Mm. And, you know, I am slowly arriving at a sort of a, a middle position between the two because, you know, this this issue has taken me to research wide and large on the issue, including I've, I've looked at Eastern philosophies, including Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism, just to try to understand whether we could draw from there. And perhaps perhaps we should look at these issues using an Eastern philosophy. You know, maybe mm-hmm. you should be able to say everything, but you should be very careful how you say it. That way, you not only have freedom of speech, but you also don't offend, right? So maybe there is a middle position there that would go against this cancel culture. But again, I want to just underline once more that I have not reached a full opinion on that. Thanks, Alex. Fourth question is the communication question. So how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? You know, Peter, this is an interesting question to me because I don't have that problem. Good. I don't know why that is the case precisely, but I think that the folks I am in touch with, maybe maybe because they are younger uh, compared to the general uh, let's just say the average age of the common futures and foresight practitioner or scholar. So they are aware that there is such a thing as future studies, and maybe they're not aware of the specifics. But usually when I say I am working on the futures, I, I study the futures, or I do scenario planning, or you know I'm doing foresight for organizations, usually I am understood. And actually, I'm not only understood, but they say, oh yeah, that's a cool field. I know what that is about roughly. Yeah, send me some papers. I want to know more. So I, I actually have a good feedback on that. Mm. And that the generation, you know, the, the generation I'm talking to, maybe, maybe because, you know, my business partners are rather young. They, have, they, they are in their 30s or 20s. They're about my age. And maybe because the folks that I meet online, including followers, are usually younger than me. So they are aware of this, these issues. So my feedback is rather good on that. I don't have to explain as much. And when I do have to explain, say, to someone who really is, say, an older scholar, I wouldn't necessarily assume they don't understand, right? I would try to certainly use some common knowledge. Like I would start from scenario planning, which is something that usually most of scholars have heard about, Mm. and just make it very simple and say, you know, it's just an expansion of scenario planning, all right? But it's much more than that. We do it with more methods. We want to achieve more outcomes. And there are a lot of people having different opinions on how to do it. But I wouldn't necessarily assume that they don't understand. Uh, in Again, my bottom line is most of the pe- people I talk to, they do. Good. I think the question suggests if you met a person who you thought could benefit from using you and your ideas, mm. 
then how would you introduce it to the person so that they move towards you and your thinking? I would respond to that with an answer that many other guests have given to you, which is I would stress that everything we do is about changing the way you act now. So it's about looking at the futures in order to change the present. And then the discussion starts, right? Because then they ask, what is the connection between the long-term future and the present, right? Because they're not in that in that space. And, and then when you're there, I guess when you're there and you're discussing about that, then it's easy. Yeah. Because you just have to explain that all the decisions that you make now are just the back-casted chain of events that leads to the long-term future. So yeah, it's I guess there is that jump, right? That trigger that we need to stimulate, to encourage in the mind of the listener, the curiosity that everyth- everything we do is not a, a highbrow, boring speculation about the long-term future, but is relevant, right? Once you have turned on that curiosity, then the conversation is downhill. Yep. Thanks, Alex. So at the last question. So we've had an interesting year and year and a bit. You've obviously ridden out COVID in Singapore. So you've had an experience of COVID and you've also watched the disaster of Italy and Europe and America and everything else. But really, what have been your projects? over that period of time, apart from the PhD, of course. Uh, Thanks for asking, Peter. Um, Well, because we had this turn of event, I diverted some of my research effort into a new endeavor, which is my YouTube channel. And my YouTube channel is based on content on futures and foresight. I did this out of an experiment, actually, because, you, you know, as you might imagine, my consulting time and conference abroad time shrunk drastically. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So I had not only more time, but also I had the incentive to find new sources of income. So I thought, why not? Right. And seems like people are increasingly connected. So I thought, let's try to do some introductory videos on YouTube, introducing newcomers to futures and foresight. And I did that again as an experiment, but also because I felt the need, you know, it was a response to a need. A lot of people ask me for very introductory, one-on-one, simple, straightforward, ABC stuff on futures and foresight. And oftentimes I felt ill at ease because I could just send them a couple of articles, but I didn't know, I didn't know if they would read them. Not, not everybody wants to read articles, you know, so I thought if only I had a couple of videos I could send to them that, you know, they just need to look at them and they understand what's, what Futures and Foresight is about quickly. So I thought, well, I guess th- we don't have those videos. I have to do them. So that's how it started. I started to do a series of videos on basic Futures and Foresight methods and concepts. So from the different terms that we use to define the, the field of Futures and Foresight to basic scenario planning methods, what is the difference between scanning the horizon and scanning the environment, different methods to translate scenarios into strategy for organizations, what does it mean to use science fiction in futures and foresight? And I I have more to come, right? So that idea led to a stream of videos that has been well-received, and that is something that I wish to continue. I, I think it's not only fun, I am having a lot of fun doing it, but people apparently also have fun looking at them. That has been the project I've been at in the past year that is taking more and more of my time. And as a spin-off to, to that series of videos, I'm also having a series of conversations about the field of futures and foresight with either leading figures in the field who can say something that I don't know. I am improving my own understanding, but at the same time, making it public. Mm. Other people can also improve their understanding. But also, I hope in the future to to have conversations not only with people from the field, but also with people from outside the field that could say something interesting 
yeah. about the field because, again, we go back to question two, right? We go back to the idea of making futures and forests more established in academia and in the world at large. And how do we do that? Well, we need to increase the dialogue between us and other fields. So I hope, I'm hoping that this series of conversation I'm having will spin into a series of conversations with a lot of people about the future who are not necessarily from from the field. And this series, which is called Foresight Chats, with four written as a number, also brings me to your industry. So I am that's that's the reason why I'm so honored to to be here and to collaborate with you, Peter, because we should support each other along the way as fellow podcasters, so to speak. And also because I think these conversations are really solving issues. And just to share with you an anecdote that would support my point, the way this conversation has started is very spontaneous. It was not planned and it's almost funny, uh, almost ridiculous. What happened is that one of my videos about futures and foresight, I said that futures literacy, a concept developed by Real Miller, is for beginners. So Real Miller wrote to me and said, you're wrong, futures literacy is not for beginners. <laughs> so I wrote back to Real and, and we had a long email exchange. And at the end, we thought, how about I propose to Real? We have a discussion about it, which is going to be a recorded discussion, and I'm going to put it on my channel. And he, he agreed. So we had the discussion. And uh, if you put aside for a moment that I was extremely edgy because that was my first publicly recorded discussion, which is clear from the conversation. Well, if you put that aside for a moment, we came to not only an agreement, but also an understanding, I guess, a further understanding about what futures literacy is. Mm. Because during the conversation, I think perhaps the key takeaway of that conversation for me, during the conversation, Real actually admitted that futures literacy has been taught to beginners, but he would love it to be taught to any people thinking about the futures of different level of expertise in the future. So what you see here is that we were talking past each other. Actually, we were both right. I was right in terms of futures literacy has been for beginners so far, but Real Miller was right in that he thinks that futures literacy should be for everybody in the future. So those understandings, I believe are crucial because oftentimes as futures and foresight practitioners or scholars, we don't talk much to each other about these conceptual constructs. And then yet we use them all over the place. So we got to be clear about what everybody's saying. So that led me to think, all right, first of all, I'm not comfortable at this. So I need to get out of my comfort zone and do more of this. <laughs> but secondly, I thought, well, this is actually useful. You know, this is useful, useful because in each of those conversations, we can bring just a tiny bit more of clarity to the field and to a field that actually needs a lot of clarity. Well, I should certainly keep on doing those conversations. So that's why I've been having more foresight chats with the four written as a number <laughs> again uh, in the past year. Yeah, and I hope to continue and, and I hope to have you as a guest as well. I agree completely, Alex. I mean, one of the things I've said from time to time to people is I talk about the contents of our conversations and the process of our conversations. And I actually suggest that while what we say about the future in terms of content could be useful and probably should be useful, I actually think the way we have dialogue about an emerging, uncertain, disruptive future may well be the most valuable thing that we can offer people. Mm -hmm. Because to talk about something that is not here now, mm -hmm. to talk about something which might be emerging from the past, might be emerging now or could emerge in the future and have a conversation. Because most arguments are, if you like, most debates or arguments don't have to deal with multiple timeframes. Mm -hmm. And yet the essence of futures conversations, I believe, futures dialogue is about this notion of really the nature of time. Yes. Whether time is linear, time is circular, and the ability to have a conversation where we both learn something is the essence of dialogue. And I completely agree that if we cannot dialogue our way through 
emergent complex future problems. I don't know what we're going to do because I don't think they're solvable without without dialogue. I think dialogue is the beginning, is the middle, and I also don't think dialogue ever ends. And if I may add to that, it is surprising that a discipline a discipline like ours, which is clearly so much based on dialogue, has so little of it. If you look at the the way we engage with the public discourse at large, it's starking how little dialogue we have right with economists or you know policymakers we okay we're doing a great job recently uh, with the U- european union and many other countries are increasingly embedding force in their operations but historically and still in comparison to other fields in academia we have so little dialogue so that's why what you're doing peer and what i hope to be doing in the future with a hopefully series of chats that is uh, equally successful to yours, I think it's crucial because if we have, I'm just trying to project this in the future, if we have, say, 15 podcasts about the future, about futures and foresight, maybe the first reaction is, oh my God, we have competitors. Yes, sure. But if we have competitors, that's because the quality of our stuff is increasing. We are raising the bar, right? And we are expanding the cakes and more people are going to get interested. There is more audience. So more incentive for people to pursue this as a field of study or as a career. So eventually, if we have 15 podcasts like yours, then we will certainly be more impactful and the dialogue will be much higher, right? So that's how, how we start. And I commend you for that. Thanks, Alex. It's, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been a good talk. So thank you very much for taking some time out to spend some time with the FuturePod community. Thanks, Peter. It has been a true honor. It is an understatement to say it has been an honor and a great pleasure to talk to you. And um, I hope to talk to you again soon in the occasion of another of these chats. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.